This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back for a second series of Gosh Pods Goes Green. In this series, we are focusing on the important issue of air pollution. Over the next eight weeks, we will explore the impact of air quality on our health, factors contributing to air pollution, and start to think about what we can do as individuals and as healthcare professionals to improve our air quality and advocate for change. In this episode, we're focusing on indoor air quality and speaking to Dr. Ben Barrett, a reader of environmental exposure and public health at Imperial College London, as well as a deputy director of their environmental research group. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Charlotte Adams, Sustainability Project Manager at Great Ormond Street, and I'm delighted to be joined in today's podcast by Ben Barrett. Thank you, Ben, for coming on the show to talk to us today about indoor air pollution. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So I think everybody is fairly familiar with outdoor air pollution, and we had a great talk with Tom Parks in our last episode about this. But when it comes to indoor air pollution, what are we referring to and what is indoor air quality? So it sounds like a very simple question, but actually it's quite complicated and it will mean different things to different people. I think what most of us are familiar with is how stuffy a room is. So we might walk into a room and it's a bit hot, a bit smelly, and that probably means it's not very well ventilated. So we open a window and that's improving indoor air quality inside that room by ventilating pollution from indoors, outdoors. But by opening that window, we're also letting pollution that's generated outdoors into the room. So we're looking at a balance between infiltration of outdoor pollution, ventilation of indoor pollution to create what we call indoor air quality. Great. Thanks for that, Ben. That was really insightful. So I think obviously, especially considering we've just been through the pandemic and our lives have kind of changed massively with the time we spend indoors. I think we spend around 90% of our time indoors now. It's obviously vital that we consider indoor air quality within our homes and workspaces. So what are the key things that we should be looking out for here? So back to this ventilation question, this became really prominent during covid For example, schools, school classrooms were asked to open all their windows and keep them well ventilated to try and disperse the infectious components of COVID. So this this made us think about the quality of the air that we're breathing. What's in that air? Is Is it clean or is it polluted? Is it good for our health or is it harmful? There's all sorts of different sources of air pollution. With COVID, we were thinking about infection. But thinking about how we live our lives, particularly at home, we cook. Some of us use incense or other scented candles, etc. indoors. We clean, use cleaning products, use perfume, etc. All of these things emit particles and gases into the air that we're breathing, and some of them are toxic to our health. Some of them aren't. So we need to think about what we're releasing ourselves into that room. Then we need to think about our homes, where they're placed. And many of us live in cities next to busy roads, the traffic pollution, all of the things you were hearing about in your last podcast. So by opening that window, those pollutants can move into the house from outside. So in terms of improving indoor air quality, we need to think about the quality of the air outdoors. We need to think about the quality of air indoors and how the air moves between the two. 
Yeah, I think it's really important that we kind of look at our everyday routines and see kind of what could be affecting the indoor air quality in our homes. In our outdoor air pollution podcast, we heard about how particulate matter and NO2 was very prevalent in our outdoor spaces. In our indoor spaces, are there any different forms of pollution and where do they come from? What do they look like? So as I've mentioned, some of the pollution inside our buildings is from outdoors. So that's actually the same pollution just being transported indoors. But we also create the same pollutants in the indoor environment. So nitrogen dioxide, for example, is created by gas cooking. That's the principal source. Gas cooking and heating is the principal source of NO2. As we move away from using gas within our homes, and hopefully that will be removed entirely in future, then that will cease to be a problem. That's a good example. Take gas out of a home and you will take nitrogen dioxide out of a home. Then particulate matter has some similarities. Again, we're burning. So when we're cooking, we're burning something. When we're driving a vehicle, we're burning something. So there are the similar similarities in the particles. But there are also quite big differences. So some of the toxic compounds coming off tyre wear and brake wear, for example, are, are not produced in the home environment, those abrasion particles. But then we create others. So we can create organic particles with some of the perfumes and cleaning products that we use. The further challenge is materials, perfumes, those cleaning products produce literally thousands of different airborne chemicals. And we can detect them, but what we are yet to establish is, in some cases, which of those compounds are the most toxic, which are the ones that we need to control the most. There are examples, formaldehyde being one, where we know that this is a toxic compound that we have to control in the home environment. But there are others that we're detecting that we're yet to discover how important this is in terms of toxicity. So there's no more research to be done. The same is true outdoors. Most of those pollutants that are high profile is because there's regulations for those particular pollutants. There are regulations for particulates and nitrogen dioxide. There's no regulations for some of those other compounds, so they tend not to be given quite so high profile. Doesn't mean they're not there, doesn't mean they're not toxic. It's just the regulation and the evidence needs to catch up. And that's true in the indoor environment as well. Thanks, Ben. Are you able to talk a bit about how the air quality within our homes can affect our health when it comes to indoor air pollution? Yes, it's very similar to outdoor pollution, but it can be much more personal because these are our own personal spaces and they're much more affected by our own behaviour. One of the challenges with outdoor air pollution is quite often the pollution is not created by the person who's suffering the health effects. It may not be the driver of the vehicle, it's the person walking on the street next to the vehicle. But inside our own homes in particular, we're much more in control of that environment and we need to think about our own behaviours. So some people will be much more susceptible to those air pollutants than others. And a typical example might be with asthmatics or people who have allergies. And I think many of those people know themselves what they're sensitive to. They know that if they clean the house and shake the bedding out and make lots of dust, they might get a runny nose or itchy eyes because there might be dust mites or other things they're allergic to. So I think a lot of us, if we stop and think about it, can link our activities indoors to our own health and symptoms in some way or other. I think we need to make that sort of mental connection that is this something I'm doing? 
is this something to do with the air that I'm breathing that's causing this reaction to my own health? And then there are others who are much more sensitive. And these are where we've got to be really careful and ensure they've got the best possible quality inside their homes so they've got the best quality of life when they're there. Yeah, it's really important, I guess, as individuals to understand how we can have more control over the areas that we live in when it comes to air quality. In previous podcasts, it's been highlighted that there is an equalities issue with outdoor air pollution, with certain socioeconomic and ethnic groups being exposed to higher levels than others due to where they live on busy roads and in more polluted areas. Is this the case with indoor air pollution and how does that play out in a similar way? Absolutely. And I've, I've mentioned about our own behaviours, but of course, there are many aspects of indoor air quality that we don't ourselves have control over. Building materials and, and building quality are a primary one. So if you have a poorly built home with poor insulation, poor materials used, that can cause exacerbation of things like mould. It can mean that you get infiltration of pollutions from vents, kitchen vents, or neighbouring vents into your home causing poor air quality and or smells. And in our own research, we do find a link between the poorer air quality homes, indoor air quality homes tend to be the cheaper houses, the rental houses, the houses where the residents do not have control over that house. So there is an imbalance there. And then there's the ability to change that house. So if you can afford it, you can improve the insulation, you can install double glazing, you can install ventilation, a cooker hood, etc. But if you can't afford that, then that produces further inequalities. I think probably mould is damp and mould is the most evident, visible socioeconomic relationship between poor quality housing, poor indoor air quality and therefore poor health. But that's not to say it's the only one. In the news recently, I think, and and in kind of conversations around air quality, we're hearing more around how wood burning is quite detrimental to health and how that can have effects on the indoor health and potentially outdoor health with your neighbours, particles moving outside. Is that something that's kind of having a big effect on people indoors? It's quite difficult to quantify on a population scale what the health impact of wood burning is. However, wood burning, wood itself, smoke is very fragrant. And I think many of us are familiar with walking down streets and being able to smell someone burning wood in that street. And that gives us some idea of the quantity and the the other methods about estimating how much fuel is being burned in different parts of the country to estimate the scale of this problem. But I think from a public health perspective, it's to do with exposure and proximity. So if you are in the countryside and you have a well-operating wood-burning stove with locally sourced, well-dried fuel, and you use that stove in an informed way, then the public exposure and public health interventions are much less than using a wood-burning stove in the middle of a densely populated city where you have limited access to high-quality fuels. So I personally feel that there is no place for wood-burning stoves in urban centres. There's plenty options for other space heating methods, much cleaner methods. In the countryside, it's maybe something different. It's not quite so critical that we limit it. 
But it's typically in cities, it's a lifestyle choice. And where lifestyle choices are causing detrimental health impacts on neighbours and others in the community, then I think that should be limited and restricted. Thanks, Ben. That's really interesting to understand. I think we're seeing indoor air pollution become more of a prevalent conversation topic when it comes to air pollution in general. How are these conversations around indoor air pollution becoming more common? And do we need to have conversations about indoor air quality with our health professionals, with people that we work with and for and with our landlords? There's all sorts of different levels to that. The conversations are quite definitely needed one level is around evidence. Gathering measurements in people's homes is quite challenging. You have to have permission to go into a private space, install monitoring equipment, ask them all sorts of questions about behavior, etc. All of these things are not problems when you're monitoring outdoor air. You can just install a, a monitor in a public space rather than a private one. So there's a big lack of data. One of the main areas of conversation that we need to have is how we generate more evidence and understand the problem in more detail. Having said that, the evidence we do already have indicate that there are changes that can be made to improve indoor air quality. You mentioned earlier on about the social imbalance that can occur. Housing quality is is imperative for public health, and it has been for hundreds of years we really need to look at the quality of the housing stock in this country for many, many different reasons. Indoor air quality being an important one, but also carbon emissions, fuel savings, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that indoor air quality is another important aspect of that housing quality discussion that hopefully will rise it up the agenda and make it a higher priority. If people become aware of the relationship between their own health and their homes then that is something that they should be talking to their GPs and other health professionals about so I think as part of that conversation that we have as health professionals about people's well-being whether they have symptoms which are respiratory or allergic or otherwise exploring what's triggering those symptoms, what's triggering that worsening in health. And and the home environment is definitely something that should be part of that discussion. I think in many cases it is in relation to allergens, so pet ownership, dust mite, etc. But it may not be so common to ask about things like cooking habits or damp and mould in the house or, or housing quality. So I think perhaps the conversations being had, but it needs broadening a little to explore these factors in a bit more detail. Yeah, that's really, really important, I guess, to note that there are all these things that are coming out in research that we haven't considered before in our own day-to-day lives, like how we cook and how this is affecting our health. So that's really interesting to know. What can people do to both monitor and reduce air pollution in their homes? Well, I'm, I'm a great believer in using our own bodies as monitors. Our noses are tremendously sensitive sensors and they're free. So do think about when you walk into a room, if one you get, we all know when you're sitting in a room for some time, you get used to smells and stuffiness, et cetera. But if you nip out to make a cup of tea and then come back into a room and it, it smells damp or stuffy or smelly in any way, then ventilate. It's an indication that you're not ventilating that room enough. 
and you can open a window just for a few minutes and that will have a huge difference. One interesting thing is that if you ventilate a room, typically you will reduce the humidity. And that not only helps with damp buildup, but drier air is cheaper and easier to heat. Many people think by opening a window that you're going to increase your fuel bills because it's more expensive to heat the house. But actually, ventilating just for a few minutes in the morning and the afternoon won't cost you any more money. And in some cases, it will actually save you money because it's easier to heat the room. So use your nose. Look at those pollution sources. You can often see them. You can almost always smell them. When you're cooking, certainly open the window or use the extractor fan. That's exactly what it's there for. But also maintain your extractor fan if it is there. Change the filter, make sure it's clean, make sure it's working properly. Otherwise, all you're doing is blowing the pollution round and round in circles. So I think it's something that we can be aware of. And, and that's one of the important things about air pollution, both indoor and outdoor. It's not really rocket science. We just need to be aware of what the risks are and use our eyes and common sense to think pollution is coming from that. What can I do to protect myself? Yeah, that's such a great point to highlight that if you can smell something, it's normally an indicator that the air quality in question needs to be ventilated. We've spoken a bit about our own spaces and our homes, but what can businesses do to ensure their employees are safe and not exposed to high levels of air pollution in the workplace? That's a good point. And you might want to fold schools into that as well, being another workplace for children. So there are occupational settings and occupational hazards, and these are protected by regulation. So we need to ensure that occupational standards are maintained. What I will say is occupational standards tend to be there to ensure the safety of the employees. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are good air quality. It just means it's not directly dangerous. So we should all be aware that if we're working in occupations where there are sources of pollution, not only should we ensure that those regulations are being kept to, we should be striving to improve further beyond those regulations. In environments like offices, and in some cases schools, quite often there's mechanical ventilation. So that means that the air is sucked in, usually on the roof, and then blown around the building. It should be that there's an air filtration system on that inlet. And just like your extract fan on your cooker, it will have a filter. It needs maintaining. So you should be asking of the building managers, are you maintaining the filters and the ventilation system properly? And is indeed there a filter on the system? So just check out that if you're in a mechanically ventilated building, that it is maintained. This is also now true of some new housing stock where there's mechanical ventilation. That also absolutely needs maintaining. Schools are interesting. In terms of indoor air quality, they're actually regularly quite clean places. There are challenges around schools that are built next to busy roads. This is something that really planning regulations should not allow. We should not be building schools next to, to busy roads. It seems like an obvious thing, but it's still occurring. And the schools are becoming more aware of how to protect their children, both in the playground and in the classroom, from outdoor air quality. Indoors, there's great store put on ventilation. And indeed, the government has circulated carbon dioxide monitors to look at ventilation rates. So make sure the school is using 
their carbon dioxide monitors that they should have been provided with. And then think about kitchen emissions and making sure they're being ventilated properly and not blowing all of those cooking emissions into the school playground, for example. And this is something that both the schools should be looking at, but also the parents and the PTAs to make sure that air quality is a consideration in the running of the school. And I'm assuming also that the local authority will have a part to play in kind of the school. So it's always good to, I guess, lobby those local authorities where schools are already built in busy transport areas. Indeed, local authorities do have a lot of responsibilities relating to air quality and they are able to enact local change to some degree. I'm hesitant placing the whole burden on local authorities. I think central government has a role to play around, I've mentioned planning. And there should be restrictions on the placement of of schools and and other sensitive locations, nurseries being another important one. Building materials is something that central government needs to be on top of and ensure that we're not using toxic building materials in any of our buildings, whether they're residential or schools or occupational. The schools themselves have a role to make sure it's, it's being looked at and given sufficient priority. And then the rest of us need to keep our eyes open and, and keep this on our radar. And, and I will stress again, in many cases, there is good air quality in workplaces. There's good air quality of schools. There's good air quality in homes. This is not a universally big problem. There are problem areas, but there are other areas where we've already made great advancements. So this is not necessarily something that we should all be scared of or think this is something which is universally impacting our health we just need to look at the situation and say is this good enough in our case if it is great if it isn't we need to do something about it absolutely i guess with that in mind where can people learn more about indoor air quality good question and one which is in flux let's say i personally feel that there isn't enough information out there at the moment There's a very nice project which has recently been launched called SAMI, which is specifically looking at air quality inside schools. So if you Google SAMI, S-A-M-H-E, you'll see all sorts of information about air quality inside schools and, and other resources. In public settings, the indoor air quality tends to be focused on some of the priority areas. So there's some good resources online around damp and mold about what individuals can do, what landlords can do, and what housing associations can do. Occupational health, you should be providing information by your employer and ask for that if it's of a concern. Hospitals are becoming increasingly involved, and this is why I'm speaking to you, which is great, and thinking about their own air quality, both in their their wards and their sensitive spaces, but also about transport to and from hospitals. So places like Gosh have got some really good information. Some hospitals are not quite so hot on it. And then there's government advice and information on indoor air quality. There's a, a very strong NGO group working on indoor air quality and producing resources, and you should be able to get hold of a link for that. For anybody listening, the link for that resource will be in the podcast description. That's been wonderful, Ben. Thanks so much for such a cohesive overview of indoor air quality. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods Goes Green. Please join us again next week, where we're going to be joined by Dr. Abigail Whitehouse, a paediatric respiratory consultant and senior clinical lecturer in children's environmental health. We hope you can join us then. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode. 
as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on Gosh Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to Gosh Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.